Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. When we think of leaders of our country's black liberation and civil rights history, certainly W.E. Du Bois, James Baldwin, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. would make the list. But many, many more contributed to the movement. What about Paul Robeson, Ben Davis, Ida B. Wells, Henry Winston? Why are these people often erased from our history books? Today we're joined in discussion with Dr. Tony Montero. He has some thoughts on the subject, so let's discuss. Well, warm greetings. I'm I'm excited today. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony Montero, who is a scholar, an activist, uh, enlisted in many publications as one of our most pro uh, notable scholars for W. E. Du Bois. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit it to that. I, I would add, you know, Baldwin and King and Ben Davis and Henry Winston and a variety of other other people too. Um, lives in Philadelphia. And he is active in social, economic, uh, political struggles. And one of the neatest things <laughs> is that he's, he started the Philadelphia Saturday Free School, which is a, a school Saturday where you could, well, tell, tell us about that. Tell us about your, your free school that you do. I've, I've been, I'll put a link in our, in, in, in our, our YouTube for the free school so people can find out more about it. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. Thank you, first of all, Pat and Greg, uh, for inviting me. I'm glad we were able to hook this up. Uh, yeah, the Saturday Free School is uh, kind of began at Temple University 10 years ago. And, um, and I started it in an effort to bring uh, African-American studies students and other students uh, in conversation with the African-American community of North Philadelphia and beyond, which surrounds the, the, the campus of Temple University. Well, you know, as things go with these universities, you don't, uh, don't think you have a permanent uh, position, even though they had all of these buildings and classrooms that they weren't using, uh, it became a little bit uncomfortable. And we ultimately moved uh, the site of what we were doing to the historic Church of the Advocate in North Philadelphia. Uh, this is the church where, the, where one of the first uh, Black Power Conferences in 1968 was held, where the Black Panther Party held their uh, uh, constitutional convention uh, in 1970. Uh, it was the first church uh, to induct uh, 11 women as priests mm -hmm. of the uh, Episcopal Church. Of course, they did it uh, going against the hierarchy. The hierarchy of the church ultimately caught up with them. So we became situated there. We've been there now uh, for going on nine years. Mm. And um, our official name is uh, the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. 
and we're really that philosophy and black liberation. And while we are a school in the sense of um, the free universities in Berlin uh, during the 1920s and the freedom schools of the civil rights movement of SNCC and the freedom schools of the Black Panther Party, uh, we see ourselves as a, a little more than that. We, we really do see ourselves as a school of thought, right. a school of revolutionary and radical thought. And we also see ourselves as activists and have over the years organized uh, not only conferences, but large conferences like the Reclaiming Our Future, the Black Radical Tradition in Our Time in 2016, and you know many well-known people, including Reverend Jeremiah Wright, Angela Davis, Cornel West, Robin Kelly, and others uh, spoke, and close to 3,000 people attended. Uh, we've held uh, conferences on the works of uh, James Baldwin, but also in uh, 19, uh, pardon me, 2018, we organized a whole year dedicated to the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the birth of W.E.B. Du Bois and organized um, twice a month readings of the works of Du Bois throughout the city of Philadelphia. We read every week from the works of Du Bois on the black radio station. Uh, and then following that, we did the year of Gandhi uh, his 150th anniversary. And, you know, uh, COVID kind of cut us short, but before COVID came, we had uh, Reverend uh, James Lawson, the great Gandhian, the great civil rights leader, uh, and so on. And we've um, uh, recently, uh, in 2021, we did a lot of things, I come to think about it, but uh, in July, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. And then um, this month, we did a three-day symposium on the life and legacy of Henry Winston. Right. So, and, oh, and, yeah. and when, when Greg told me that we were going to have you on and I saw you were the scholar of Du Bois, I read uh, Gerald Horn's biography of Du Bois and a lot of it. He, uh, before we get into Henry Winston, Du Bois was one of our, you know, he, he's mischaracterized as one of our great black intellectuals. He was one of our great intellectuals. I, 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 I don't know why we put black in front of his name, because he is so extraordinary and his writings are more applicable today than they have ever been. Absolutely. And uh, he, he, he's, tell, give me just an elevator talk about uh, your relationship with his scholarship. Uh, well, you know, um, I became acquainted with Du Bois really in the Communist Party. And people like Henry Winston and Esther and James Jackson and William L. Patterson and Wees Thompson Patterson and a whole slew of people, including Herbert Apfecker, would always be talking about Dr. Du Bois, Dr. Du Bois. I went to a historically black college and 
because it was the height of the Cold War, Du Bois's name could not be mentioned hardly. So it was only when I came into the Communist Party. Du Bois is a world historic thinker. In fact, I put Du Bois on the same level as every revolutionary philosopher and thinker of the modern epoch. And um, we are still learning him. Uh, and I would, I would say, uh, Pat, uh, and forgive me if this is not uh, pleasant, but I don't think any scholar has yet plumbed the depth of who he is. We know Hegel better than we know Du Bois. Right, right. We certainly know Marx better than we know Du Bois. Um, and for many reasons, which I could explain if you asked me, I put Du Bois on that same uh, level. You know, I'm um, in my career, I was a research and, and evaluation director for public schools. And I came across his book, uh, a book, W. Du Bois Data Portraits Visualizing Black America. Have, do you know about that book? book? Yeah, yes. And, it, and it, I did a review for our professional journal about the book. He is the father of sociology, of modern yeah. sociology. His, his data presentations are extraordinary. Uh, and I'm just, I was blown away at how a powerful an academician he was and steadfast in his um in his scholarship mm -hmm. but what i was ashamed of is that i didn't know i didn't know that i didn't know that about it. why didn't well, i know that about it don't, i mean you're not alone i mean you know uh with the cold war he was erased yeah. you cannot forget it was not until the fall of the soviet union that it became permissible in wider academic circles to mention his name. He was erased and he's still not fully appreciated because of the lingering uh, effects of the Cold War and anti-communism. But um, yeah, I mean, I know you're talking about the Philadelphia Negro, uh, this monumental work in sociology in what we would call empirical sociology, in urban sociology, uh, and it is, how would you say, it is multi-layered and multidisciplinary, which makes it even more extraordinary and more advanced than most sociology today, which is narrowly conceived, either it's data or it's theory or it's um, um, uh, survey or mapping or urban or rural, but he did it all in that one volume. And let me just say this, but that is not his greatest sociological work. His greatest sociological work, in my estimate, is the souls of Black folk. Right. And that, that would come as a great surprise to many, but I'm prepared to make that argument that that is his greatest sociological work. And that was the, we're not going to get on with this country and the potential the of this country unless we deal with the color line. That's right. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And, and isn't that that's it today? 
isn't it? Well, well, we'd have to say yes, uh, but you have to understand the color line as Tell Du Bois understood it. And uh, many people who will talk about race today, especially today, Pat, especially today, are frankly understanding it in very anti-Du Boisian ways. Uh, du Bois understood the color line in relationship to democracy. Uh, and uh, I would say ultimately radical democracy. Uh, it was not a thing in itself that was only concerning black folk. He had this expansive historical, very imaginative and creative, really scientific way to understand the color line, which is not so uh, much the case today, at least in popular discourse. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's get to Henry Winston. Uh, we've had on uh, when we had Gerald Horn on, um, we talked a lot about Ben Davis, and there's this whole series of uh, civil rights leaders and radical, I, I wouldn't say radical, they were revolutionary thinkers at the time of the destructive uh, part of our country with Jim Crow and McCarthy that, that had a prominent influence shaping the political zeitgeist. We could add uh, Paul Robeson to that. We could add a whole series of later, Angela Davis, you. <laughs> we, no, and, don't put me in that. <laughs> we, uh, oh yeah, you can, you can hang out with them. Okay. And tell me, tell me about this man um, and, and why we should know him and why he's applicable today in our, our present political economy. And let me say a word first before uh, okay. given that opportunity, because I'm looking forward to it too. But I'm just uh, so pleased, so happy that Henry Winston is being, excuse the expression, discovered. He shouldn't be discovered. He's a figure of the stature of all those people you mentioned, but he's not as, he's not as popular. He's not as accepted. And I have to believe the only reason is because you'd have to take a lever to separate him from the Communist Party and his engagement and involvement with it and his leadership of the Communist Party, which was since Foster, uh, uh, no, no one led the party in a way that uh, Winston does. So I'm, I'm so excited that, that Tony has had the uh, audacity to bring him back forward in front of people again, when there's many scholars writing about the radical black tradition and they're talking about Ben Davis and Claudia Jones, and, and, and that's of course appropriate, but Winston was a giant and his, the omission of, of Henry Winston from this conversation is, is, is a huge error. So thank you for that, Tony. I really appreciate you, you doing that. And Greg, thank you for your words because I feel exactly the way you do. Uh, I think there's a case to be made that Winston may have been the greatest leader of the Communist Party. Uh, people don't quite understand him, his stature, um, there's so much about him uh, just as a human being, his humility, his generosity. So often when people think of a revolutionary leader, they often think of a stereotype of very hard and um, 
uncaring, cold type of person. He was, and I, I worked with him for so many years and was mentored by him. Um, he demonstrated that to lead people, I don't care whether it's in a civil rights organization or a communist party, you must first and foremost be able to love human beings, which means that you must be a human being. And that's what Henry Winston was to begin with. And it's kind of uh, anticipated, what he became is anticipated in his upbringing born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi uh, in 1911, which meant that relatives of his, as well as people living in that community and near him, had been born under slavery. Uh, so he's hearing this, stories, the words, the language, the music, of the former slaves. One of his uncles had been lynched in Mississippi. Uh, so, and then of course the family moves when he's young uh, to Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and this, he's hit right in the middle of the Great Depression. He has to drop out of school. Some, it's sometimes he's going on the road, uh, uh, on freight trains and other stuff to find work. He's a part of that generation that is unemployed, that is homeless, that is hungry and doesn't have a future. He finds the unemployed uh, councils uh, and the unemployed movement. He listens. He's, uh, I can only imagine him as a young a teenager, precocious, uh, wanting to understand deeply uh, not only what produced people like himself, but what, in, what produced the working class and the crisis of the working class. And he commits himself early on and he stays with that commitment for the rest of his life. And um, in spite of suffering, and of course we all know that when he went to prison, uh, it's quite emotional for me. Uh, he was neglected medically and he loses he, his son. He was tortured. Yes, I think that's a better word. I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's appropriate to say they just didn't, they intentionally, in a sadistic manner, yes. refused to treat him and deal with his horrible pain caused by a brain tumor. Uh, that went on forever in a in a, a, a that most ugly inhumane. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Your story. Sorry. No, 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 Pat. Thank you for saying that, and I agree with you. It was horrific. It was horrific, and it was racist. But you know, he comes out of prison, and believe me, uh, the only thing that he ever talked about or said in regards to losing his sight. They took my sight, but not my vision. And I, I, I was around him all the time. I never heard him make a big thing of his own uh, suffering, what happened to him. He never talked about himself in that way. 
Uh, and I don't think any of the communists who were in prison suffered what he suffered. Um, but I'm convinced that even when he was in prison, he was rereading Du Bois, by the way. I want to make that, and Lenin, because that will be after he gets out, the great theoretical synthesis that I think defines him as a theoretician and as a uh, political leader. The synthesis of Lenin and Du Bois, and that's completely missed. I would have to say, and Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I don't think his writing was fully appreciated during his life within the party, and certainly not now. His book, The Strategy for a Black Agenda, and then the other book, Class, Race, and Black Liberation, everyone thought that those were just about Black folk. Henry Winston was trying to discover, as every revolutionary party must do, the uniqueness of the revolutionary path in their country. And for Winston to understand the essence of the revolutionary struggle and path within the United States, you had to understand Du Bois and the scientific uh, discoveries that he made about American society through his sociological, his historical, his phenomenological studies. It is that synthesis this great synthesis that defines Henry Winston and still provides us a template to more creatively and scientifically anchor and re-anchor the revolutionary struggle in this time in our country. I, I want to... I want to go back to before he was sent to prison, but I want to talk a little bit about... Um, Joe Biden, who oh, wow. spent <laughs> from the surprise like to the absurd. <laughs> no, no, I don't have no, a. I'm sorry, Pat. I don't have an attention disability. I'm not floating around here, but I'll tell you. Joe Biden spent Thanksgiving on Nantucket Island with David Rubenstein, who is a multi-billionaire hedge fund manager who manages the Carlisle Group, which if you go to John Oliver, had a special segment about the depravity of the Carlisle Group okay. for their policy of buying up mobile homes and kicking people out of their mobile homes as a part of their political, uh, I mean, as part of their economic plan, just a horrible human being. So you, you know, you have uh, Henry Winston in Harlem, and what is he doing with the rent control and the shelters? Not only were people unemployed, they didn't have any place to live. So he's organizing, um, um, not drop-in centers, but, you know, housing, uh, places for these young, primarily Black men uh, to live. He was, he was intrinsically involved with the social health and well-being based on class as much as well, probably more than than 
than race, would you would you say? Well, you know, that's a very good point you make. And, um, you know, that, that's why I mentioned Winston's early years and upbringing and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and being unemployed and having to drop out of school. His own life taught him empathy, and sympathy, and feeling for those who were downtrodden, those who didn't have a home. And so it was, I think for him, it was just like breathing air. If there's suffering, I have to try to address it. And, and that's what, you know, would take him to the, you know, putting people's furniture back in their apartments when they were kicked out. Uh, and this, as I knew him, I didn't know him in this period, but his emphasis, his methodology, let me put it that way, his political methodology was to always think of the most oppressed uh, first. First, that was the primary thing. And how to, um, how to make it possible, as he would say it, for them to play their role in the struggle. He would talk like that. How to make it possible for those who are not seen and heard, those who are invisible in this society to play their role because that's, that for him was where the great revolutionary potential was. Right, right. Yeah, and I-, I, I uh, Go, go back to your, your point uh, uh, about, about his writing. I mean, I was introduced to the Communist Party. Uh, 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 I was a graduate student and I had the fashionable picture of Angela Davis in my office and a guy strolls in, uh, who recruited me into the Communist Party subsequently, but strolls in with a copy of a book. He says, I, I know you subscribed to the paper. I never met a communist before. And he said, here's a book that's just published. It was a strategy for a black agenda and a remarkable book, just a stunning book. And, and you, you, I, I wish I still had my original copy. I don't know what happened, but I have my copy of uh, <laughs> well annotated. But it's remarkable to read today. You're exactly right. I mean, that that shouldn't be left unaddressed, what you said earlier. It's remarkable to read today. It answers so many questions that are occurring today. His understanding was that deep. That it can guide you in today's work. So uh, just an impressive, uh, and, I, and I agree. I think in the Communist Party, uh, his role was underappreciated within the Communist Party. Yeah, no question. Uh, no oh, I'm sorry, Greg, I didn't mean no, to. No, no, that's, uh, please continue. Yeah, see, and that's, you know, you know um, kind of confirming what you're saying, you know, the Saturday Free School is overwhelmingly young people, overwhelmingly young people. And that, that makes me feel good, of course. Uh, it doesn't make me feel young, but it makes <laughs> me feel very much alive to be with them. And all of these super, super smart young people and it was, because we had read Winston in the free school a year, year and a half ago, and a strategy for a black agenda. So they all knew of him. And it was they who proposed a symposium, a three-day symposium on Winston. 
I say that to say he resonates. And this is 50 years after that, somewhat almost 50 years after the book is published. He resonates with young people, highly educated young people, Ivy League educated in some cases, young people. There is a vibrancy and a creativity uh, based upon, and I, Greg, I agree, his innovative thinking. And he, you know, this is a very important lesson for us. This Marxism of the academy, this static Marxism, that everything that needs to be said was already said, there is no theoretical innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If that is the case, Marxism cannot address the very complex ideological and political problems that we're confronted with right now. And we are confronted with ideological problems, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen. And sometimes I think uh, because of the collapse of the economy, the collapse of, uh, pardon me, of the academy and the collapse of the left, we're not really yet ready uh, to adequately address. Well, the, the other thing that I, I in, in stalking you for this uh, podcast, I've done a lot of your, your videos and you, you, one of the themes that you talk about is how a lot of the civil rights movement has been hijacked. Like we think of Martin Luther King as a, um, I had a dream speech. We don't think of his last speech that he gave where he's talking about class and he's talking about the struggle of imperialism and you know and and we we um you know we we elevate uh you know lincoln to this wonderful person well Link, lincoln had kind of a dark side <laughs> with with some of his opinions you know we we tend to have their uh, the strength of what was going on in the 40s and 50s and 60s uh, being um, uh, whitewashed, I guess that's a good term, and, yeah, and being distorted. And, and that's what I think when you're talking about Henry Winston with all of the things that he did, we, we ended up casting him aside because he was a, oh, he was a, a, a communist and, and was destroyed by the Red Scare. I don't know, what, what are some of your thoughts about that? Um, well, you know, um, uh, the ruling class has, in a sophisticated way, appropriated and eviscerated the great Martin Luther King. Um, you know, uh, in theological school, the, uh, Crozier Theological School, uh, one of um, King's heroes was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Christian socialist uh, who was executed by the Nazis. Um, and then of course, the other great pillar of King was Mahatma Gandhi. So early on, uh, King was, if not a socialist, uh, early in his twenties, um, he was interrogating socialism through a person like Bonhoeffer, who was a socialist and a Christian, and of course, the anti-colonial struggle uh, through Gandhi. So much so that uh, 
King has this very uh, great essay called My Journey to Nonviolence, where it was, he was literally talking about a journey taking him to the East and to uh, India and interrogating not just Western philosophy and theology, but this great edifice, an ancient edifice of Eastern philosophy, which he felt would be a source of the justification of a nonviolent path of struggle. So um, just like Du Bois or just like Winston, King is far greater than we would ever know uh, by what, you know, what is said you know, in the public media and such. Uh, King was a freedom fighter. He was never uh, committed to compromise. The Montgomery bus boycott was the first, uh, may maybe one of the first, if not the first great working class movement in the South. Those were working people who would not ride those buses. Uh, and they knew what they, King and the rest of those knew what they were looking at. They knew the class character of the people that made up uh, Black Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the, uh, one of the stories that um, I think we, I only discovered in Gerald Horn's book is that King, uh, King Atlanta, his dad and Ben Davis, Atlanta, his dad were, were best friends. Yeah. And, yeah. and when King was stabbed in Harlem, who was the first, who was the first guy that went in and gave his red blood? It was, it was his buddy, Ben Davis. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't, why don't we hear these stories that, you know, that that shaped him? We, we, we hear this kind of faux Christianity, although, I mean, I, his brand of Christianity is what I Absolutely. would uh, attest to. Yeah, right, but, right, that but, I could live with, I live with. You know? Right, right, but it was, a, it was a real liberation philosophy no that was at the core of who he was. We don't no, hear no that. Question. No question. Well, and if we wait for the ruling class and these uh, bought off academics uh, to tell us the true story, we'll never know it. We have to tell these stories. We have to do this research. Uh, and that's why we have such a thing as a Saturday free school uh, to do this work. The ideological struggle is central. And he who wins the struggle of ideas wins the future. We've always known that. But somehow too many of us uh, think that activism has replaced ideology. And so the activism becomes empty and uh, uh, generations of young people are raised on activism with no theory or ideology or history. Let's go back to a dark time of our country that again, I think we don't spend enough time with. It was, it was a lot of the Winstons and that group that fought against fascism, you know, the, the Italian, the German. <laughs> and after, after the war, um, 
there were a whole series of laws that were either proposed or passed, the Smith Act, the McCarran Act, uh, the Munn-Nixon Act, old Dick Nixon. And this was, uh, and when you look at these acts, they are horrific in trampling on free speech. Uh, they are, uh, it, it's thought crimes of the greatest uh, ugliness of an Orwellian sense. And because of this red scare, that was a atomic bomb that went off to destroy all of the um, gains that came through this class struggle. And um, boy, did it work. T tell me a little bit about the, about those, that kind of legislation used to so effectively uh, destroy the, the progress that was being made in many parts of our, our country. Right, right. Well, you know, the lessons of the anti-fascist struggle uh, and the victory over Hitler and Mussolini and Japanese imperialism, uh, the ruling class did not want those lessons to be uh, fully understood by the American people who were enthused by the fight against fascism and by its victory, uh, because the logic of the fight for democracy leads ultimately to radical democracy and socialism, uh, understanding that uh, democracy demos the rule of the people. Uh, and of course, after World War II, you have all of these revolutions around the world, including the Chinese Revolution, the Indian independence movement and the rising struggles against colonialism in Africa and the rest of uh, Asia. Uh, so uh, McCarthyism is not just McCarthyism. The deeper meaning is the consolidation of state power by the most predatory uh, and uh, warlike and repressive elements of the US ruling class. It is to consolidate state power. But they could not do it with those laws and with that kind of legal, so-called legal repression. Because don't forget, the 1960s is a decade of assassinations. Mm -hmm. So they had not killed the spirit of struggle, even though they put communists in jail and people lost jobs and all that type of thing. And this vicious anti-communism is uh, un, un, unleashed upon the people, uh, they still had not killed the desire for freedom and the desire to struggle. So we get to the 60s and we have the assassination of Medgar Edvers, we have the assassination of Kennedy, we have the assassination of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Fred Hampton, uh, and others. So it's a, it's a decade of assassination to terrorize and uh, destroy the movement. And this is um, the ultimate act of terror and state consolidation. The irony is, the irony of it all is, 60 years later, state power in the hands of the ruling elite is more tenuous than it was back in the 60s and 50s and 40s. 
Elaborate on that. What do you mean by the that? crisis of state power? This is why they're talking about um, our democracy. Our democracy? You're talking about the rule of an elite. It is their democracy. It is their narrative. And hence, they have inherited the results of 60 years of repressing movements, austerity, carrying out wars all over the world. And now, you know, to use Malcolm's uh, words, the chickens have come home to roost. We don't actually know at this point whether or not the ruling class can rule as it has ruled in the past. Certainly the people are angry and they might not have a clear direction, but one thing I think they have decided, large multi-millions of them, that this form of rule is not in their interest. I don't know if I made myself clear. Well, uh, you did. You very clear, I, I, I agree. But I think the, uh, it's important to, to notice that the subjective conditions are not up to the standards that they need to be to, to, to meet these objective conditions, which you outlined so well. And, you know, this, this country is in a fine mess. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's a fine mess yeah. on every level, political, sociological, psychological, and economic. Absolutely. But we lack a left that's, that's, that's sufficient, adequate for, for these times. And I'd like you to, perhaps you could address that, uh, Tony. Uh, what, what do we need? What's missing? Uh, yeah, people are angry. There's no, all opinion polls show it. There's no doubt. You know, they, if you look at the support for single payer, you look for the support for a $15 an hour minimum wage, which is out of date today, but all these issues that people are way ahead of, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party for sure, the Democratic Party as well. So where's our left? And, and before you answer that, I might add that um, uh, Barack Obama has a mansion very close to the uh, <laughs> fellow that David Rubenstein's mansion on Nantucket Island. And, and just in case, just to- oh, yeah, yeah, Just in case we forget. Just in case you forget. <laughs> we'll go there afterwards. Well, which is part of the problem. That's just like what you said, Greg, you know, it's the, the, the liberal left, uh, it, I don't even know, where to start of how uh, frustrating uh, they are in really taking these core values that were prominent, powerful, accurate uh, from the um, civil rights movement and have been just dissipated, gone. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, I think um, for me, we have to begin by being uncompromising and stating what is true and what is obvious. Um, I think the days where uh, um, empty popularity uh, and just being heard, and I'm talking about the left, uh, those days should be over. I think we have to be brutally true, truthful about and honest about what uh, the situation is. Um, there is very little of a left left in this country. Mm -hmm. um, you see, 
An alternative political movement cannot grow out of compromise after compromise after compromise. After you've compromised so, so much, after you've promoted lesser of two evils so much, the next question is, well, what is left of you? And how do you expect people in a state like this where they're terribly angry and, and ready to rebel and are rebelling and so on, uh, how can they trust leaders and movements that have always told them that we're voting for the lesser of two evils or a left, as in the case of the Democratic Socialists of America, or even the squad, who are really a left kind of um, uh, gatekeepers for the Democratic Party. In other words, if there's a, a, a mass movement out of the Democratic Party from the left, the DSA and the squad and all of these different celebrities and personalities are there to kind of block that and to say to people trying to get out of the Democratic Party that somehow either you're homophobic or you're whatever, you know, a racist or, uh, or uh, unprincipled or not practical. I think the best thing that could happen for the left is a mass movement or leading a mass movement of working people, I don't know whether they have to lead it because working people already leaving the Democratic Party in droves, you know, have already left the Democratic Party. What's, what's left of the working class in my estimate in the Democratic Party are the labor leaders who have given hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to the Democratic Party for them to give the working class NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership and war after war. So my point is, all great movements begin with a great idea, great ideologies. And that's where we have to begin. I think the way I feel, and I'm in Philadelphia, I feel the soil is so rich for the things that we're talking about. And I'm talking about not only among angry white workers, like in Butler, Pennsylvania, uh, but I'm talking about black working people who everyone presumes is, are, are loyal forever to the Democratic Party. I can give you research uh, done here that will prove the very opposite. So I think, you know, um, the masses of working people, lower middle class people, young people are so fed up with the existing political and economic system that they're ready to move out and ready to, to create something new and, and more working class and more really radical and revolutionary. Right. And uh, Greg and I are both have roots in the Midwest and travel back, his sister still lives there. And um, you know, every time I go back, I'm just struck by the, you know, the Trump signs and the, um, uh -huh. the, the, you know, those deplorables and flyover countries. And, and these are my friends, you know, they're, and these they're are my people. These are my people. These and are I love people. them dearly. And to reduce them to sort of some kind of misguided uh, political ideology without looking at the fact that these towns that were thriving are nothing but pull tap 
and video poker and dollar stores with no jobs and no, you know, you, you forget all of that. And then you get struck on these, this kind of uh, distorted uh, manipulation of, of uh, Trump being able to steal their souls. Well, there, there's a reason why they got, got there. And you better understand that or you're going to be chasing Hillary failures for the rest of your life. Please. Uh, listen, you know, um, take Butler, Pennsylvania. I've never been to Butler, but I've heard stories about what deindustrialization has done there. And someone told me the story, and Greg, you might know this better than, than I do, that in the last few years, the only uh, public work that was produced in Butler in downtown was a, a, a memorial to its citizens who had died from overdoses of drugs or suicide, deaths of despair. Now, I don't care if they're white, black, or purple. Those are my people. That's what I identify, because I know what produces that. You know what I'm saying? And I am not going to accept an elite discourse. They can call it the 1619 Project or settler colonialism or whatever they want to call it. You will not get me in a position to separate myself from those people because I understand what that suffering can produce. And the ruling elite understands it as well as we do. Uh, they, you know, many of those people voting for Trump vote as a protest against this bipolar elite. And we can't lose sight of the fact that the Democratic Party is now the party of the richest people that humanity has ever seen. There's never been a political party like this. A almost complete party of billionaires under who control it. Look, if I could just say, you know, they're always these elites are always trying to down the Communist Party of China. I, I won't even talk about the way they talked about the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but let's take the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party, as a party for its people, for the Chinese people, makes the Democrats look like the greatest hypocrites that have ever existed politically. They are not, they do, and, and now, you know, I, I don't wanna go on, but you know, this whole build back better, did they think they were gonna buy the working class back after all of this time? Working people do not trust that. Working people do not believe in this elite. Joe Biden's polling numbers are low. Well, we'll talk about inflation, of course. But people know what they're looking at. Uh, and it's a good thing. I don't know why we, who call ourselves leftists and revolutionaries, would feel any sense of, well, Biden isn't doing good, we should be sad. Biden isn't doing good, I'm happy. Because Biden is the representative or th that presidency, the representative of the class 
that has gotten us into the, this deep crisis we're in. Joe, here, here's another Biden fun fact. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm always he, interested in them, by the way. Right. He, you know, he's from Delaware. Yeah. And um, one fourth of all the revenue of Delaware can come from one building, one corporate building where they end up registering for their tax, uh, you know, benefits. Corporate so, tax benefits. I, you know, so there you go. And is anybody touching that? I mean, this, this, this whole um, uh, negotiation with these bills is just this, if it's just right there in front of you about what their priorities are and- um, Yeah, and, and you know, uh, Pat, it's too little too late. The system cannot radically reform itself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, from above. A new political consensus will not be built by these elites. They're ideologically and philosophically incapable. Um, in a lot of ways, we have to say that this has become a kleptocracy uh, where people are elected to office not to serve, but to steal. Uh, and they've done that well. Uh, they've hollowed out the state. This, you know, it was such a joke to hear these people talk about this is the new New Deal. This is the new great society. I mean, these are, no, the state has been hollowed out. It has become a vehicle to enrich a very few people that have become very rich, a big part of the wealth and income inequality is not just rooted in the normal market processes of the economy, but due to control of the state. This is, we're in a, we're in a crisis greater than any the nation has ever faced. Uh, and I understand the anxiousness of the ruling elites who don't know what to do, who have no answers, and do not understand or have any feeling for the suffering of the masses of the people of this country. Right, right. Well, it's uh, you're in the Eastern time zone, so you can start day drinking. I've got another 20 minutes before it's noon, but this is, <laughs> this I, uh, is so I, let's know, go. I want to go back let me, to Henry. Let me, let me, let me just add something. Okay, here. all right. Because uh, yeah. I don't want it to get away. Uh, you know, you, you share that humility that you attribute to Winston, and I I, I hold that in the highest regard. I, I knew that the little I knew Winston had a chance to meet him. That humility is wonderful, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention your own suffering. Uh, you haven't brought it up. I mean, you you know, it just it doesn't come up uh, uh, from time. But the way you were treated at Temple University, I think, is 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 something that our listeners should know about. And could I ask you to talk about that, about those circumstances and how that happened? Because uh, you were essentially kicked to the curb by people who uh, don't hold near your stature or near your understanding of, of, of the world. Well, and people that I fought for, because, you know, I, I was in the forefront of the fight to save African-American studies as African-American. Um, and then as soon as we won what appeared to be a partial victory, uh, the people because they were senior faculty that we put in position to be chair people of the department, uh, quickly uh, made a deal with the administration to get rid of me. 
And uh, <laughs> uh, my, um, my first inclination, which was a right inclination, was to fight and to call upon the students and faculty at Temple to join in a fight, not just to have me reinstated, but to end Temple's gentrification of the community surrounding it, to return to the moral political values of Cromwell, the founder of Temple University, who in his youth, his heroes were Frederick Douglass and John Brown. Well, we're so far away from that now, I don't, you know, uh, it's unimaginable. But we fought, we fought, um, and um, we enlisted the support and generosity of Philadelphia's Black community and the labor movement, and the labor movement, including 1199 C and the great leader of that union, Henry Nicholas, that you might know of, and Teamsters, Jed Dodd of the Teamsters and Railroad Workers uh, and others. Um, and we fought. Uh, we did not win our, the ultimate victory, but we forced them to expose their hand. For example, the person who became the chairman of the department, Malefe Asante, longtime professor and uh, uh, reactionary nationalist. I don't think we could describe him any other way. Uh, he, he came out with a statement on Facebook back then and said that I didn't deserve a job at Temple. I was not a scholar. I was nothing but a communist apparatchik. And those are his words. He took that also because we had put a lot of pressure on the board of trustees and, you know, civil disobedience and so on. And he took that to the board of trustees. And so the board of trustees is made up primarily of people that represent corporations and, and so on in Philadelphia. And of course, all you had to say is this guy's a radical and a communist, not just a radical, but a communist and a communist functionary who has, you know, is not interested in scholarship. And, uh, and that literally made the administration more determined in not bringing me back. But, and here's the interesting thing, uh, we were able to so, um, how could you say, shake up the administration that a year after I was fired, the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts uh, quit. A few months after that, the provost of the university in a dispute with the president is fired. And then a few weeks after that, the president himself is fired by the board of trustees. So we didn't get our job back, but we sort of cleaned house at the top level of the administration. But the ongoing political consequences for Temple, Temple's position in Black Philadelphia has never been so weak. They see it as, because I'm a son of Philadelphia. I mean, you know, I don't, no big thing. This is my home. This is where I've struggled. This is where I've, you know, I've done everything. And so 
to do something like they did to me, it was felt throughout Black Philadelphia. And Temple going forward uh, in the last couple of years has wanted to build a 35 seat football stadium in the center of the Black community. And the Black community of North Philly has risen up and made it virtually impossible for them to do so. Now, in response to all of this anger and dislike for Temple, they hire their first Black president, as though that is going to convince us that Temple is on our side, but it hasn't. The anger remains, the distrust of Temple. And so, but it was good for me, even though I had to go on unemployment and food stamps for a while, it was good because I was then freed to devote more of my time to the struggle, to the free school, and to young people. Uh, and that's what we're doing now. You know, it, it all kind of worked out good for me, I can say that. And I don't, uh, uh, I don't feel it was a loss. I just didn't get my job back. <laughs> and that goes to Henry Winston. You know, it was the Red Black Alliance that destroyed him. And how, I, you know, you are an academian. You're a, a, you're a remarkable historian. How do you teach Black American history without teaching the Red Black Alliance, without teaching. I, 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 can you tell, no, unless you're in the South and, and they have critical race theory laws that say you can't uh, mention 1619 Project or lose your job. I mean, it's integral into the whole history of post Reconstruction, Jim Crow. That's what, I, I, it's a straight line. I, I don't understand. First of all, I'd say this. You know, I'm not interested in teaching the 1619 Project or what they call critical race theory. I'm interested in teaching the history of working people. Right. I'm, I'm back to Howard Zinn, uh, Philip Foner, uh, Winston. I'm interested. See, I want to teach in ways that will unite the working class, not that will divide it. I don't want to teach or to have a curriculum that teaches that all white people are responsible for the oppression of all black people and never mention the ruling class. Right. right. I'm interested in teaching a history of working people, of the poor, of the oppressed. And I'm interested in teaching in such a way that shows there's a way out of this crisis. So, I'm not impressed with 1619 Project. I'm not impressed with the theory of settler colonialism. I'm not impressed with uh, Isabel Wilkerson's writing on caste. I'm, none of that. I think it is all a part of a ruling class ideological counteroffensive against the possibility of uniting the working class. You don't like Kendi? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I just, I, I, I just thought I, I just I thought I'd take my fingers and put them on the blackboard just for you there, just to get a little uh, reaction yeah, from yeah. you. A, a real pseudo intellectual. Yeah, yeah. I, so, <laughs> yeah. It, it amazes me. I, Greg's done a wonderful. Uh, oh, he, his blog is just wonderful. I don't know if you follow his blog. I'll oh, link sorry, to it. In, I don't, Greg. Oh gosh, it's great. You should look at his his stuff on uh, white fragility. 
uh, with uh, what's her name? I, I'm proud of that one. I'm really proud of that one. Greg, that was, the, that was a good one. Of, what is the title of your blog? Uh, ZZ's blog. Oh it, yes, I know of it, but I lost. You know, I lost connection with oh, it. Yeah. Yes. Well, most of it's reprinted on ML Today. So if you follow ML Today, you see most of my stuff. But I'll ML, uh, ML Today. Yeah, Marxism yeah. Leninism Today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We'll make sure make sure we get you on our list so you can yeah please do please yeah. do yeah yeah but that that uh that that was like uh fingernails on a on a chalkboard read <laughs> and hear i heard i heard her on i heard the woman that wrote white yeah. fragility on this incredible show it comes on sundays in pittsburgh uh called on being which is all this oh, yes, on myth, mystical, you know, it's yeah. got all these corporate sponsors, but it's all about bizarre, mystical, yeah. weird things. And, and she was on and she was preaching and I, oh my God, disgusting. I mean, a real setback for anti-racism. I mean, that's what oh, we no can't question. convey to people that these distractions are real setbacks to anti-racism. It's not just they're another theory or another way of looking at it. They're setbacks, they're, they're U-turns. When you're talking about identity you're not talking about class you know you're not talking about imperialism and that i uh, it just we've lost uh we've we, we've kind of well, you got you got to read winston that because winston puts them together and in, in, in the right way well i i have looked at several of his interviews that he was done uh, on youtube and uh angela davis gave a tribute to him uh, recently and she said exactly what you said, Tony. She said, this was a man that had a smile and compassion and kindness and empathy that overrode, that was his foundation. And I would recommend anybody looking at some of his old videos that truly comes through. He's thoughtful, kind, loving. And that was the core of his, that's the core and, of his and, being. And, here's, here's a Oh, sorry, please. Oh. No, it's just, just a quote. I just opened up uh, Class, Race, and Black Liberation, and this is Winston. He's talking about a, an author. He says, they sh he shifts responsibility for the source of racism from monopoly capital to white workers. That's right. And that's the essence of what, what, what Winston was teaching. He, he, they, racism is racism. It's ugly. It's uh, a feature that you must deal with. But the blame is monopoly capital. Absolutely. And not white workers. And today that just resonates. If people understood that today, we'd be so far ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just well, wanted to say, Pat, that it was Winston who politically led the movement to free Angela Davis. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 really? It was Winston, I'm telling you. And um, his internationalism uh, allowed for his understanding of how this had to become a world movement and how it had to be connected to the black freedom struggle and to the uh, movement uh, against the war in Vietnam. He was a magnificent tactician, a magnificent, <laughs> you know, I guess, Greg, you, I, I'm preaching to the uh, choir when I say this, not to have Winston included in the history of the American left you're not talking about an American left if he's not there. I mean, we could talk about Ben Davis, a great man, Claudia Jones, William Patterson. And I'll tell you, I didn't know Ben Davis. I didn't know Claudia Jones, but I knew William L. Patterson. And I knew the respect 
and veneration that he held Winston in. Patterson, and Patterson is no small fry in this whole thing, but he looked up to and highly appreciated and valued Winston's leadership. He was, he was extraordinary. And I agree with, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm talking too much, forgive no, me. No, he's a giant, he's a giant. A giant, there is no question about it. Yeah, and, and just some background on the Angela Davis uh, thing. She just was at uh, Berkeley or no, she was at UCLA and um, had uh, joined the Communist Party, but she did a, a, a trip to Cuba. And then Ronald Reagan put her in his crosshairs and just became apoplectic about how horrible and, and systematically made him it, 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 well, it, it, yeah. you know, tried to lose her job. And Angela, Davis, her. Angela Davis was not new to the left. Her parents were leftists in the South, in Birmingham. In fact, her brother, I think he's her older brother, is named after Ben Davis. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, yeah. He played football. Didn't he, didn't he play football? Too? Yeah, he played for the Cleveland yeah, Browns. I met him. I met him. Uh, he was yeah. kind of like a foot. Bodyguard for Angela Davis, but I met him uh, through through uh, my my exposure to her. Yeah. Well, here here's some more fun facts. You can tell I do research for these things with my, oh, my yes. fun. But uh, the Little Rock Nine, when they were being escorted, I, I went to uh, Arkansas um, uh, in um, last spring and went to the high school. Two, two of the people doing the escorting were member of the Communist Party. Really, the the three the three civil rights workers that were shot down in Mississippi. Uh, one yeah. of them, his parents were communists. In fact, yeah. LBJ did a memorial and a, a call and said, uh, you know, that I think it was this Michael Schmidt. I forget his name, but Schwerner, um, Schwerner. And you know, and was called the parents and said they were very sorry. Immediately, um, J. Edgar Hoover gets on the phone to to W. You know, to Johnson and says, "You know, they're all communists." And they laughed and chuckled and you know and had a big hee haw about this. But it it shows you how integral all of the civil rights, the power of a lot of the movement at that time was, in a way. Uh, the foundation of that of that building was built on the work of people, you know, like Ben Here's Davis and Winston and, and so and forth. The Civil Rights Congress, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, Nick. the Council on African Affairs, et cetera. The Civil Rights Congress that uh, Patterson was uh, um, critical in forming, all of that. Well, my goodness. Gosh, this has been fun. Uh, I, I just have to let you know that um, uh, Greg and I give people bling uh, for being on our podcast, and it's a little Effie button. Uh, it's the uh, the little communist union, the machinist workers that uh, Tony, uh, we had on her on the long deep grudge. So that's the only bling you get. It's just something for a conversation uh, to, at cocktail parties. Yes. Where you can say, what, <laughs> what is the little button? Well, that's the FE, the Farm Equipments Union. It's a little communist-run union back in uh, the 1940s. So the, the, the curious thing, I don't know if you know this, Pat, but 
uh, Gilpin pointed this out recently, that union in Moline that's on strike now, that was an FE union. Oh, really? That's where that militancy comes from. It's a remnant of the militancy goes back to the 50s with the Farm Equipment Workers Union and their legacy. Uh, and that's who these people are. And, they, you know, they're, they're, they're very militant. Right, right. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful story with that. So, uh, listen, this has been a real treat for me. I can't tell you how, um, how glad I am to meet you and to uh, chat with you. I wish we could just do this every Tuesday and uh, have, have a cup of coffee. But thank you so much, Tony. The this pleasure is really mine. I mean, this has been, I'm, you, you know, you, I, can't, I can't say you've made my day because this day is almost over, but <laughs> you've made my week. It, it's such a pleasure to have conversation and share ideas uh, with people like yourselves and to be treated uh, so nicely, so kindly by you. It's been beautiful. Well, you. You, are, you, are, you are one of my new heroes and I, um, I just can't tell you how wonderful it's been to get to know you through, through all of my reading on you and YouTube videos and so forth here. Uh, this is just, well, anyway, enough of the gushing. Quits. This has been great. Thank you so much for being with us. Great to see you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much.